As Advent approaches, it seems appropriate to start thinking about angels. Angels appear throughout the story of the world's preparing for the coming of Jesus. They appear to Mary, to Elizabeth, in Joseph's dream telling him to trust Mary. In today's podcast, learn from Kate Moorhead about angels and the roles they play in Scripture. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Church Next podcast. My name is Elizabeth Brignac. I'm your host today. You're listening to episode number 34, Meditating on Angels with Kate Moorhead. Kate is Dean of St. John's Episcopal Cathedral in Jacksonville, Florida. She's the author of seven books, including Angels of the Bible. She wrote that with Scott Brown, and the book includes meditations based on the angels of scripture and also some terrific images. It's a terrific book. I highly recommend it. Our podcasts are curated from our online learning library at churchnext.tv. You can learn more about us there. If you'd like to support us, please consider getting a subscription. It's $9 every month and it'll give you access to all of our individual online classes. Your generosity helps us produce digital experiences that help shape disciples. The first angels who appear in the Bible guard Eden against the return of Adam and Eve. Scripture says that God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. That's Genesis 3, verse 24. The final angel who appears in the Bible is the one who brings John the vision that he describes throughout the book of Revelation. And when John tries to kneel to the angel, the angel says, quote, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And that's Revelation 22, verse 9. And the angel goes on to tell John that the vision comes from Jesus and to spread the vision to others and to tell others to take it seriously. So the first angels in the Bible carry flaming swords to keep people out of Eden. And the last angel in the Bible delivers a vision of the end of the world That includes many incidents of angels bringing down plagues and wreaking havoc. And at the same time, the angels who follow God do God's will, absolutely. They interpret God's will for humans. They guide humans in what they're supposed to do. They praise God. They rejoice in divine victories and they fight on the side of righteousness. Some appear as otherworldly. Some are giants. Some look like humans. Some are good, but not all angels are good. Some in the book of Revelation are fallen. Their portrayal in scripture suggests that the battle that we perceive between light and darkness is just one part of a much larger battle, one being fought by the followers of God and those who fight against God throughout the universe. In this podcast, Kate Moorhead examines angels in detail. She talks about who they are. She talks about what they do and how they're connected to God. She talks about their shapes, how they appear, the roles they take. She talks about angels as messengers from God. They interpret God's will for humanity. And she talks about evil angels, angels who've chosen to work against God, how they influence human thinking. She compares their interference with the human mind to good angels, invitations. They're not invasive, they're invitations to God. And she discusses angels at the end times, especially 
in the book of Revelation. Angels are described in scripture as beings who look like ordinary men, voices that people hear but don't see, bright warriors with flaming swords, indistinct figures who appear in dreams. In one interesting case, they Ezekiel 10 describes angels are as wheels composed of fire, eyes, wings, and hands, and four heads. Can't forget the four heads. Um, not really the cherubim, the cherubs that you see if you Google the image of cherubs. They look fairly innocuous. Um, but in the Bible, they're seldom cute, whatever else you might call them. In her first talk, Kate talks about the diverse ways in which angels are depicted in scripture. She talks about new ways of thinking about angels that have been opened up by recent discoveries in quantum physics. I feel called to introduce angels back into the mix of daily devotional life, mainly because of the new insights that quantum physics is giving us. I think most Episcopalians, we embrace both science and technology, and we have always had a Newtonian understanding of science. So we have thought to ourselves, if something is can't be proven to us, if we can't see it, then we can't be sure it exists. So for many years, uh, the Episcopal Church just quietly avoided topics like angels and demons, miracles, exorcisms. But the exciting thing about the rise of quantum physics is that we are being introduced to dimensions that we cannot see, but that we are assured have a reality. And if that, in fact, is the case, then in the spiritual realm, it's quite possible that we could be intellectuals and entertain the existence of forces that are beyond human sight, but nevertheless do exist and do influence us. Um, and angels in the scripture are influencers, uh, both for the light and for the darkness. They stand at the boundary between what we can see and what we cannot see, what we can perceive, and what is impossible to perceive. Um, beginning with the story in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are expelled from that garden, there is an angel placed at the gate, uh, a cherubim, a fiery angel, who stands at the gate on the boundary between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, uh, keeping us out of the heavenly realm, but also um, in a way, protecting us from what we can no longer tolerate and handle, uh, the brightness of the celestial beings. Um, so that from that moment on, angels become either um, boundaries or bridges between uh, the heavenly and the earthly realms. And so I think they're a wonderful source for us to meditate upon as we seek to open our hearts and minds uh, to the existence of God and to the mystery and awe of the cosmos and of the fact that God has created so much more than what we small human beings can see with the naked eye. Uh, so to, to ponder angels is to ponder the mysterium tremendum. It's to open the heart and mind to so much more uh, that God created. In the, in the, story, in the first uh, creation story, it says, um, and so God created the heavens and the earth and all their vast array. Uh, and all their vast array so that God created the heavens and the earth, but there was this allusion to so much more. Scripture is so multifaceted and varied in its depiction of angels. Sometimes they're called angels. Sometimes they're called men. 
Um, sometimes they're called visitors and they appear in so many different ways from the almost incomprehensible in the prophet Ezekiel, for example, when angels appear as wheels spinning with eyes in them, something that we can't even really picture with the human mind, all the way to um, someone who meets you on the road and, and tells you something or invites you um, to come back home. So angels in scripture appear all over the place. They cannot be avoided. They're all over the scripture, but they have many different dimensions and facets. They can be human beings or appear as human beings. They can be celestial beings. They can be crowds of angels or a single angel. Um, they can appear high above in the sky or they can appear right down low with us. And sometimes they're just the sound of a voice or the feeling or influence. It seems that uh, angels tend to only appear outside of a human being, that they never enter, uh, they never invade the mind, but demons will invade the mind and tempt the mind. Uh, angels are inviters, they're loving uh, creatures, so I don't think they ever um, enter interrupt our thinking in the way that demons do. But demons being fallen angels um, are another sort that is uh, prone to tempt us away from God. So there's lots of dimensions to angels. Angels fight each other. I mean, there's the great battle in the book of Revelation between Archangel Michael and, and Satan, which is a battle between the angels, um, which is a remarkable thing for us, I think, because we as human beings tend to think it's our job to defeat evil, that we need to fix the world. And we certainly need to work hard at that. But ultimately, there are other forces at work. And we are only human beings. And uh, the scripture is clear that there's a lot more going on than what we can control. And that, in fact, there are forces fighting on our behalf, which is, a, to me, a great source of comfort. Angels in scripture help God communicate with human beings. The methods of communication and the human's interactions with the angels differ wildly according to the different kinds of account that you read. Sometimes the angels appear as so indistinguishable from God that it's hard to tell where they leave off and God begins. These angels almost seem to speak with the voice of God. For example, um, Jacob's encounter with a man in Genesis 32, 22 through 30. Now, this story is referred to variously now as Jacob's wrestling with an angel and as Jacob's wrestling with God, because angels can be so closely identified with God when they're bearing God's messages and speaking God's words that when Jacob says that he has seen the face of God, that's a quote, it's hard to tell whether the text means that he actually looked on the face of God or if he looked at an angel through whom God was speaking and communicating. Other times, angels communicate as God's messengers rather than as direct mouthpieces of God. For example, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah in Luke 1 and acts as an individual who's distinct from God with his own thoughts and his own goals. And he's sent to Zechariah to give information. And he says, quote, I have been sent to you and to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And then he renders Zechariah mute. 
but it's not clear if he does this on his own or at God's direction. Anyway, angels also communicate with people through dreams, through encounters on the road, in many ways throughout scripture. And in this lesson, Kate discusses angels as messengers of the Lord and compares and contrasts these different moments in which angels act as God's interpreters and communicators, communicating divine messages in ways that we can understand. Angels tend to appear in scripture at these pivotal moments in which a human being could not comprehend what God was doing if an angel didn't come. So in a sense, yes, they're messengers. You could say that also they are translators or interpreters. I like that word because they are trying to tell us what God wants us to know, but we cannot understand without their translation or their message. In a way, they are bridging the gap between the immensity of God and our human consciousness. Um, Say, for example, if someone is speaking Chinese and I don't understand them, uh, a translator can walk in and begin to illumine to me what that person is saying. Angels come to tell a human being what God is already saying and already doing. For for example, the story that we all know about, about Mary, Mary the young woman, the virgin, who is praying and the angel comes to her and tells her, doesn't ask, tells her what God is already doing. God has determined that you are the one who will carry the Christ. Um, You are the favored one. Um, But she needed someone to translate this into her language in a way that wasn't so incredibly terrifying. I mean, she was afraid enough with the angel's appearance. But she needed help uh, in a way triaging that message. It was too great. God could not appear directly to Mary. God is just too vast Remember the story of Moses, how he wanted to see the face of God, and um, God hides him in the in the crevice of a rock and uh, shows uh, Moses uh, in God's backside. But but in the Hebrew, it's really where God just was. So Moses isn't even seeing God really. Moses is seeing sort of a a, a little um, remnant or a shadow of God. So if God is that great. God needs angels to stand um, in those moments in which a message needs to be understood by a human being, and they need to bear the message and bring it down to our level, so to speak, Um, condense it into human language so that we can begin to fathom and understand at least partially what God is doing. Except for Satan, of course. The angels tend to always bring messages of invitation They are calling you back in. They are basically saying, come inside, come into God. Um, You've been chosen. You are loved. Uh, They are a voice of of divine welcome, a voice of love, a voice of um, standing on the boundary between humans and God, but bridging the gap and inviting us closer in, uh, in a way that's accessible to us and in a way that doesn't destroy us or overwhelm us. But generally, yes, from, especially in the gospels, we see a lot of language of invitation. Um, let Christ come into you, Mary, um, uh, at the tomb of the resurrection, um, something wonderful has happened. You have been called to see this thing. You've been called to see the risen Christ. Um, and certainly, uh, 
in the prophets, angels will often be inviting the prophet into a closer relationship with God so that that prophet can then act almost like an angel and continue to give the message on uh, to, to, other, to other people. So we have lots of different kinds of invitations going on throughout the scripture. Um, and then, of course, there's the flip side of the coin. With angels, there is the potential of fallen angels. So then that would be the opposite message. So if, if, the, um, if the angel that loves God is inviting, the angel that has fallen is casting out. Uh, if the angel that is inviting is love, the angel that has fallen is hatred. So it's important to remember that these angels are created by God and that they have... Um, they have two sides. They have the light and the darkness to them. They're they're not just um, sources of goodness. Yes, there's frequent mentions in the scripture of angels appearing and saying not to be afraid. Now that does not happen all the time. Often they will appear just as men. For example, to Abraham, they did not appear in a form that frightened him. Uh, but certainly to Mary, certainly to Mary Magdalene, uh, certainly to um, some of the prophets, uh, they appeared and and reassured. So uh, yes, and the fact that they came and said, "Don't be afraid," is an indication of some kind of physical appearance that was overwhelming to the human being. Something that it probably is something beyond what we can imagine. Uh, a brightness, uh, a largeness, a celestial body of some kind that was uh, a bit overwhelming to us. And so we recoiled. Our first reaction was to be afraid. And that's why they seem to naturally say that um, when they appear in certain forms. If you've ever read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, you're familiar with the idea of demons whispering in our minds. If you haven't and you're interested, John Cleese reads a version of it that's available on YouTube that's very well done. The book is a series of letters from the demon screw tape to his nephew Wormwood, advising him on ways to lure a human mind away from God and a human soul away from God. And it's humorous as well as instructive. And the book gets people thinking about the influence of both angels and demons in our minds. In this lesson, Kate discusses the importance of Christians acknowledging that demonic voices affect how we think. And that angelic voices invite us without invading us to come closer to God. She talks about how to discern between our own voices and those of angels and demons. And about using spiritual as well as physical and mental health resources when we're trying to battle long-term problems. Now, please note that Kate advocates using spiritual resources alongside, not instead of mental health resources, as we tackle life's physical and emotional and spiritual challenges. All of these resources work together. She writes, quote, when it comes to the intersection of the spiritual life and the medical world, We tend to try to cleanly distinguish between the two, but this is impossible. As Jesus showed us in the event of the incarnation, the physical and the spiritual can be interrelated. I think it is a better approach not to think of this as an either or, but as a both and. I think we're called to wed both worlds and use them like we would use tools in a toolbox. Use medicine, psychiatry, spirituality, nutrition, all of it. We are all on the same team, so to speak. End quote. I 
I think it is a pivotal and very important concept in the scripture that there are celestial beings that love God and worship God, but because God is love, even those celestial beings also have free will. And there is indication that, that at least one of them has fallen from God's grace. And what that means for human beings is that we are being influenced not only by the holy, but we are also being influenced by evil, darkness, hatred, whatever you want to call it. And I think it's up to the human being. It's our true vocation in life to learn that spiritual landscape, to study the landscape of our minds and of our thoughts, and to begin to sift through and differentiate between the influences that come into our mind that are of God and of love and the influences that come into our mind that are uh, influences that pull us away from God or away from our divine essence. So those voices would tend to be voices of self-hatred, voices of, um, of criticism, um, voices that tend to um, act in destructive ways or want you to sever relationships. Um, so all of us have both the call to be more Christ-like and with the temptation to be the Antichrist. And I think that it's important, I think, especially in the church for us to begin to help people distinguish between these influences that enter the human mind and to begin to identify. Uh, addiction is a very clear-cut one. Addiction is a wonderful uh, way of differentiating and saying, okay, you have a voice in your mind that's telling you to continue to drink scotch all evening, even though your liver is failing and you're, you're struggling. That voice is not of God. That thought is not of God. That inclination is not of God. In fact, to, to harness that potency of the biblical language and say, you as a human being are a beloved child of God, but that thought, that voice that urges you to drink, that is a demon. That is a temptation. That is an influence of darkness. And that can be liberating sometimes to people who are struggling with addiction uh, to name that, that temptation for what it is and to give it a, a spiritual potency um, as opposed to just sanitizing it with only mental health vocabulary. I think it's really important to recognize that we have different languages here. And what we want to do is to embrace both languages. The language of mental health is very, very helpful and can be uh, help immensely in understanding and liberating a human being. Uh, but the language of scripture is also um, very helpful. And the two really, in my mind, um, should be encountered together and in relationship with one another. I think in the religious language of scripture, we have to be very careful that the demon is not a human being. So that we're not talking about people being evil. We're talking about thoughts and influences that pull you away from God um, and that can drive you to do evil. Um, so it's, but I think it is very helpful um, when someone is battling, say, addiction or when someone is battling extreme paranoia or even anxiety, to let that person know that the voice of fear or the voice of, of, of addiction is not of God. That's a really important uh, distinction to make. And then also to say that voice is not you. You are a beloved. You are created to be peaceful and loving. And this thought, this influence does not have to be acted upon. It's a thought. It's an influence. It's not of God. And it doesn't have to be followed. I think there can be a lot of freedom in that. 
and a lot of potency. The religious language has a kind of potency. The mental health language can be sanitary. Um, it can be very articulate, but it doesn't always have the punch or the reach of, of the scriptural language. Uh, the, the scriptural language can help someone understand that they are in fact good, even when their thoughts are not good. And that's really, really important. How many of us have stood up on top of a mountain and thought to ourselves, what would it be like if I jumped off and then you go, oh my God, I can't believe I thought that, right? I mean, we all have that strange little urge to do, and most of us just don't do it and we move on, but we all have these weird impulses. In chapter 38 of the book of Job, Job asks God, Why do the wicked live on, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their children are established in their presence, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. And God responds, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements, surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it, on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. Job raises questions that humanity has had for centuries. Why do the wicked thrive while the good suffer? And God responds in ways that we don't entirely understand, and he says we don't entirely understand it. God created the earth and the heavens as part of a system that is to a large extent beyond our power to comprehend. These questions are relevant to this section of the podcast because the actions of angels as agents of God in the end times raise similar confusion. At the end of the world, we want God's angels to be good and do clearly good things and triumph over clear evil. We want a loving God to bring God's children into a glorious paradise. And in the book of Revelation, we encounter angels bringing plagues and natural disasters and tearing down instead of building up. Why are God's angels violent? If the angels are carrying out God's will and God loves us, why do angels do things that will hurt God's children? And the answer that we're left with is that at least to some extent, the system is divine and complex, and we have to understand that much of it is beyond our power to comprehend, but that God is good and that God's goodness will triumph and that God will take care of us. So in this lesson, Kate addresses these questions in relation to scriptural accounts of the activities of angels in connection with the end times. There is a density of angels present in the book of Revelation that can't be denied and echoes of that same sort of apocalyptic uh, scripture found in, in the prophet Ezekiel and in the prophet Daniel. And certainly um, we understand that the book of Revelation was a vision that was had by a man who was um, in uh, exile and who had been oppressed. And a vision to me is like a form of art, it's a dream. Uh, which has great meaning, but not necessarily historical or factual meaning. So 
predicting the end of time or exactly what will happen based on the book of Revelation doesn't make any sense. It would be like me trying to predict the end of time based on a Da Vinci painting or something. So this is a dream. This is a vision of a man. But nevertheless, there are deep truths that he portrays in the book, which is that there is, in fact, a great struggle, a cosmic struggle going on between good and evil, between the light and the darkness. And that in towards the end of time, there'll be a kind of more clarification that occurs um, and things will become uh, less muddied. I think right now, um, one of the reasons why we love the great action films, like we just had the end game come out. Uh, uh, we have these great action films because people love to see the good guys battle the bad guys. And they love it that the bad guys are ugly and there's terrible music and the good guys win and then we all feel good. It, it expresses something very primal in the human being where we love to see clear cut good and evil and have the good triumph. But most of our lives are very muddied and uh, we are a mixture of, of of things that we're not proud of and things that we're very proud of and, and actions that are uh, loving and actions that are more selfish. And so our world is just so full of a mixture. But according to this vision that John had, angels are very much a part of the end of time and they actually sort of wrap things up for us. Um, they, they usher in the end of the world and they clean it up. Angels do battle with the darkness. And in a way, I guess if you were saying goodbye to your home and you were going to sell it, you'd sweep it out and clean it and shut the door and go. I would say the angels are the ones who sweep out the, the mess and clarify things and eventually even defeat evil. Um, and another part of that that's so reassuring is in the end time, it's not us. We're not the ones that get rid of evil. That's Christ's job and the job of the heavenly realm. We're supposed to be who we are, which is beloved, precious, tiny, minuscule, incredibly important, but not so powerful creatures. I think that's very important. I think, um, especially in this day and age in America, we tend to get a huge sense of our own importance and our own influence. Uh, I think we are deeply valued and we, and, and we can make a great difference. But to think that um, the battle of evil against evil is, is up to us to win is, is sort of arrogant and and causes a lot of anxiety in most of us. One of the things that's very complicated for, for us to consider is that angels also do some destruction in the book of Revelation. They actually pour down plagues. There's a lot of natural disaster that they initiate in the book of Revelation, which brings up this very deep and complex question, which is wh why do these things happen? Why do we have hurricanes and tornadoes? Is that God's will? Why, if, if God um, makes it happen, what would be the purpose of that? If God allows it to happen, why would God do such a thing? Uh, in Revelation, the angels do um, oversee some really destructive natural forces that are part of the cleansing process uh, that happen at the end of time. Um, so they're not, they are very powerful, they are very scary, um, and there is some suffering involved. Um, of course, in the end, that suffering is is wiped out and not even remembered in heaven. But never, but nevertheless, they are there doing damage, um, and and that again points back to the fact that we really don't understand so much about the purposes of God or the um, the way that our world will come to a close. There's so much uh, mystery in that for us. 
As we wind up our podcast for today, here are a few suggestions for further learning about angels in Scripture. Check out Kate and Scott's book, Angels of the Bible, Finding Grace, Beauty, and Meaning. It's a 2019 book, and it's an excellent book by Kate and Scott. And Church Next has produced a second class that's a companion to this one called Angels and Artwork with Scott Brown. I don't think it's going to make a very good podcast because it depends very heavily on visuals, but I highly recommend checking it out. It's a terrific class on our Church Next website at churchnext.tv. And we also offer two classes on the Revelation Book of Revelation, Introduction to Revelation with Wayne Whitney and Revelation, The End of the World or Heaven on Earth with Michael Battle. So if you were interested in the things that Kate had to say about the book of Revelation, you might want to check those classes out. And that's the end of today's podcast. Thanks for tuning in. And if you'd like to learn more about us, go to churchnext.tv. And let's close with the Book of Common Prayers Collect for the Feast of St. Michael and all the angels. Almighty God, you have ordained and constituted the ministries of angels and mortals in a wonderful order. Grant that as your holy angels always serve you in heaven, so at your command, they may help and defend us on earth. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.